You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology. Welcome you to the November 2019 edition of Editor's Picks as winter approaches the northern, in the Northern Hemisphere. The first article to highlight is entitled, Therapy with Biologic Agents After Diagnosis of Solid Malignancies, Results from the Corona Registry, and is by Pappas and colleagues on behalf of the Corona Registry. The objective of this study was to describe biologic utilization in, quote, real world, and of quote, RA patients following a malignancy diagnosis. Just a quick reminder about the Corona Registry. It is a prospective observational cohort of patients with RA from 169 private and academic sites from 20 states in the USA. At the time of this study, the registry had 934 RA patients with a documented solid malignancy, of which 880 had at least one year follow-up. 367 of the 880, or 41.7% of the patients, were treated with either a biologic or traditional DMARD within 12 months preceding the malignancy. And 30.7% of the patients were still on these agents at the first post-diagnostic visit. 90 patients had started a biologic within 36 months of follow-up, and an additional 44 had switched biologic agents. The majority of these patients were treated with an anti-TNF agent. Please read this paper as it will allow you to determine if this study supports the current recommendation that if a patient is within five years from the time of diagnosis of a solid malignancy, then if required, a biologic agent can be started. The next article to highlight is entitled, Opioid Use in Patients with Ankylosing Spondylitis is Common in the United States. Outcomes of a Retrospective Cohort Study and is by Sloan and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess the prevalence of chronic opioid use in patients with ankylosing spondylitis and compare the characteristics of patients with and without chronic opioid use. In this study, the investigators used data from Truven Market Scan Database. This database consists of claims from both private insurers and U.S. Medicaid. In total, they identified a cohort of 11,945 patients with ankylosing spondylitis. They found that 23.5% of the patients had chronic opioid use, and this percentage of patients was similar whether they were primarily treated by a rheumatologist or not. The proportion of patients in the Medicaid population with chronic opioid use was higher than in the non-Medicaid population. Higher rates of depression and anxiety were found in the chronic opioid users. 
The study has the usual limitations of all database study regarding the lack of clinical data and the validation of the diagnosis. But in addition, the authors could not identify the potency of the opioids that were used. The authors concluded that clinicians need to better optimize therapy in patients with ankylosing spondylitis in order to decrease opioid use. I believe this article is important to all clinicians who treat and follow patients with ankylosing spondylitis. The next article to review is entitled Clinical Outcomes and Clinical Pathologic Correlations in Lupus Nephritis with Kidney Biopsy Showing Thrombotic Mitroangiopathy and is by Lee and colleagues. There's also an accompanied editorial entitled TMA, Tell Me About It by Bajma, Chua, and Brunich. The presence of thrombotic microangiopathy, or TMA, although an uncommon finding on renal biopsy in patients with lupus nephritis, has potential clinical relevance. In this retrospective study, the authors identified 24 biopsies from 677 biopsy-proven lupus nephritis patients, or 3.5% of the cohort, they had evidence of TMA in addition to other features of lupus nephritis. The authors found that TMA was associated with a higher prevalence of antibodies, a higher SLEDA score, lower EGFR, and as may be predicted by the lower mean EGFR, a higher percentage of patients who required dialysis. Please read this paper to find out if the presence of TMA altered the five-year renal and patient survival and the incidence of chronic kidney disease at last follow-up. In the accompanying editorial, the editorialists review the pathologic definition of TMA, which they point out is not clear-cut. They also point out that although TMA may be present on renal biopsies of patients with lupus, clinicians should look for other causes of the TMA. Although TMA is a rare complication of SLE, this paper and the accompanying editorial give an excellent perspective of this rare disease entity. The next article to highlight is entitled MicroRNA-Mediated Regulation of Mucent Type O Glycosylation Pathway, a putative mechanism of salivary gland dysfunction in Sjogren's Syndrome by Gallo and colleagues. Salivary gland hypofunction is a hallmark of Sjogren's Syndrome. A current hypothesis is that epigenetic mechanisms may alter saliva flow, protein expression, and salivary properties. Based on this hypothesis, the aim of the study was to investigate if microRNAs are important in primary Sjogren's syndrome-related salivary hypofunction and to explore microRNA-mediated mechanisms 
focusing on the mucin O glycosylation pathway. The authors performed microRNA expression profiling in the minor salivary glands of samples from patients with primary Sjogren's syndrome. They identified 126 microRNAs that were significantly dysregulated in these patients and compared it to controls. They then showed that several of the upregulated microRNA in patients with primary Sjogren's syndrome targeted important genes in the mucin O glycosylation pathway. This paper, as is appropriate, is long on details of the study performed. However, in the discussion, the authors highlight how epigenetic mechanism and dysregulated microRNAs may be important mechanism le leading to Sika syndrome. They also outline the potential importance of omics in understanding disease mechanism. I suggest that this paper may be of general interest to the readership of the journal and not just to microRNA aficionados. The fifth and final article to highlight is entitled Response to Early Onset Pomidronate Treatment in Chronic Nonbacterial Osteomyelitis, a Retrospective Single Center Study. And it is by Andreessen and colleagues. Some background first. Chronic nonbacterial osteomyelitis, or CNO, is a chronic, frequently multifocal inflammatory disorder of the bone, which leads to pain, tenderness, swelling, with altered range of motion of the affected sites. It is differentiated from bacterial osteomyelitis by the sterile nature of the lesions. Although in some cases it may be self-limited, in many cases it is severe, chronic, and lasts into adulthood. So this article is of interest not only to pediatric rheumatologists, but to all rheumatologists. For resistant cases, anti-TNF agents and or bisphosphonates, and in particular pomidronate, has been suggested in many small series. As is obvious from the title of this study, the aim was to assess the clinical and radiological disease activity in response to early onset pomidronate therapy. The investigators reviewed the charts of 51 children with CNO with a median follow-up of four years. 32 of these 51, or 63%, were categorized with severe CNO and were treated in what the authors described as early onset pomidronate treatment. The mean time to pomidronate treatment was 1.8 months. 14 of the 32 patients, however, had a TNF agent added after a mean duration of 12 months from starting pomidronate. At one year of treatment, 38% of these 32 patients were in a clinical remission, although eight of these 12 patients in remission went on to experience a clinical relapse and further follow-up. 
in non-severe CNO, 10 of the 19 patients categorized in this manner were in a clinical remission on medication. And at two years, 10 of the 16 patients followed out this long were in a clinical remission off medication without relapse. The authors concluded that pomidronate was effective improving clinical and radiologic disease activity in severe CNO after one year, but long-term treatment and follow-up is required as they found continuously active refractory disease in many patients after two years of pomidronate therapy. Please read this paper to determine for yourself if there is a role for pomidronate in your patients with severe CNO and how the authors suggest is the best way to monitor these patients. I want to thank you all for listening to my review of what I felt were particularly important articles appearing in the November 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope my summaries will lead you to reading not only these five articles, but all the articles in the November 2019 issue. Please read either the print edition or the online edition, which can be found at www. .jroom.org. If you have any comments on the articles or my summaries, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. I hope you will listen next month for editor's picks of the December 2019 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology.